Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So for a number of years, my wife and I, and now our two daughters, we've participated in a tradition to mark the beginning of Advent. So what we do is we get our tree, we get a live tree every year, and we decorate it. But as we decorate it, we make sure to decorate it without the Christmas lights on, which makes it harder to do, by the way. But it's part of the tradition. So we get it all ready. And then when it's dark, we turn off all the lights in the house and we sit on the couch for 400 seconds in complete darkness. For those of you that don't like math, that's six minutes and 40 seconds, which for two adults is no big deal. But as we've added to the family, you can imagine it's not always a quite quiet night, right? Silent night, holy night, Jesus not crying. The song is not true. Okay, good song. Little ones make noise. And so we sit there for 400 seconds to represent the 400 years of relative prophetic silence that the people of God waited for the coming Messiah. And at the end of 400 seconds, we turn on just the lights of the Christmas tree and we read from Isaiah, beginning with words we just read, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then from Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Advent is a season of waiting. I'll take our deal 400 seconds over 400 years, any day of the week. It's a season of preparation. And this word, as has already been mentioned, Advent, it means coming. And throughout church history, a number of themes have been emphasized throughout Advent, and two particular comings are marked. The first is that it's a season of remembrance, looking back to when Jesus did come to the earth, when he took on flesh, when he moved into the neighborhood, and he lived among us. It's remembering the first coming of Jesus. But often we can forget that it's also a season of remembering the second coming of Jesus. Thank you, worship team, for teeing up that song just before this. We can forget that it's not just about remembering when Jesus came as a little baby, but it is looking ahead to his second coming and anticipating the fact that one day he will set the world right again. And that really is the fullness of the vision of a transformed world that Isaiah is writing about. We're now living in the in-between time, in the tension between remembering, but also anticipating. Between the first coming and the second coming, We live in this tension where we experience part of what Isaiah is writing about here, but certainly not the fullness. And so the season of Advent is a time for us to live into that tension, to embrace it, to learn from it, to remind ourselves that we're living in a kingdom that is both already, but not yet. To be reminded that we are saved, but yet we're being saved, and one day we will be fully saved. We're living in a world that is not fully our home. And therefore, we're to be in the world, but not of it. It means that we're people living in the tension between who we are and who we want to be, who God created us to be. There's a pastor from last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he describes this reality well. He says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, 
who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. I hope that's all of us. I hope that you find yourself, you recognize yourself in that to to realize that Advent is for you. This time of coming, this time of preparation is for weary souls. And so even our title of this series expresses the tension as well. The weary world rejoices. How do weary people rejoice? You see, that that is the tension. And so we're looking back to this prophetic vision of Isaiah. It paints a picture of a future reality ushered in by the arrival of a new leader who will turn the world upside down. But in the time of Isaiah, people were weary. And today, people are weary. That's the truth. You're weary about something or some things. I'm weary. We're all tired. Not just physically. We are tired in every way because we're living in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we are a weary people. Any tired people here this morning? Anybody? A few? Okay, good. I'm preaching to a couple of you. Appreciate that. We're tired. And yet the promise of Advent is that there's a reason for weary people like us to rejoice. Not to ignore the causes of our weariness. They are real. Not to pretend they don't exist. Not to fake it until you make it. But to confidently and defiantly claim and proclaim a true and living joy in the midst of our weariness. That's the gift of Advent. We can confidently and defiantly, not our own power, not our own strength, but we can defiantly, because of the truth of what Jesus has done for us and is still yet to do, we can claim for ourselves and proclaim to the world a true and living joy in the midst of weariness. I don't know about you, but I need some more joy in my life. And so it's good for us to practice Advent every year. I mean, I know sometimes I'm one of those people... I struggle with the holidays at times, the stress, the busyness, all the extra stuff. I can become a Grinch a little bit. But every year, also, God reminds me that this is an important season to remind us of the hope that we proclaim. And so, don't tell me for a minute the Christian message is out of touch, expired, or irrelevant. You may struggle to believe it, but the Christian message, this message, is what all of us want right now. Because everybody in the world is weary, and we all would love to have more joy in our life. So our message was just as true many years ago when it was written and proclaimed to the people of God. It is still true today. We are tired and weary, and yet we have reason to rejoice in the midst of that. And so Isaiah expresses confidence that this future joy will happen by writing in a Hebrew idiom, stating it in the past tense as though it has already happened. I never noticed that until this year. Somebody pointed it out to me. I've read this passage many times. I've never really thought about the fact that it is written in past tense, even though it is yet to happen. Now, for us, in a way, it has partially happened. But it's written as though it's already happened because the prophet is saying, this will come to pass. I guarantee you. You know how? Look at verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Take it to the bank. It's going to happen. And so verse 1 introduces us to the setting and historical context of the prophecy. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were the two most northerly tribes in the tribes of Israel. So when the Assyrian army invaded, it came there first. Now, this region was notorious because they were the first tribes to basically disobey God. When the people of God moved into the promised land, they were notorious for not doing what God had told them to do, which was to drive out the Canaanites. They let a lot of them stay. And therefore, they gave themselves over to that culture and that religion. So this land is known for being uh, disobedient to God. And they're also now known as the first people to experience the fierceness of God's judgment through the invading armies of Assyria. That was the first place that got the full brunt of that. But Isaiah says that was in the past. He now contrasts this past with what will happen in the future. And he says, even those places of disobedience, even those places of darkness, their gloom will go away because a light is coming. He predicts a perfect ruler who will reign forever over a prosperous and peaceful world. That's what we all want, isn't it? We want a prosperous, peaceful, joyous world. This vision of Isaiah, it promises a great reversal in which all that is wrong with the world will be made right. So we're going to look at a couple of different themes here of reversal or replacement in this prophecy. The first one is that darkness will be replaced with light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, Isaiah 8 that comes right before this is a really dark chapter. It highlights human rebellion and sinfulness. It's very dark. But it's often against that backdrop of darkness that the light shines all the more. Suddenly, into this darkness, God says, let there be light. In some ways, echoing the first words of the book of Genesis. Right? Let there be light. And this light is nothing less than the glory of God in the face of a child, Jesus Christ. Jesus will call himself the light of the world in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. And light represents many things, including hope and joy. Now, in just a few weeks, I hope you'll be here for on Christmas Eve. We'll all be in this room in the evening. We'll lower the house lights, right? Because against that darkness, the light shines all the brighter. We'll light candles from the center Christ candle. We'll pass them around the room to remind ourselves that Jesus has brought light into the midst of our darkness. So today, as we enter into the beginning of this Advent season, I want to encourage you. Maybe this is, maybe you're in a dark season right now. Maybe you're facing new challenges or maybe they're the same old challenges, but you're finding yourself in the midst of darkness. I want to encourage you that it's often in those seasons that God miraculously reveals his light to you in special ways. He reveals himself to you with greater clarity, with love, with tenderness in those dark seasons. So don't let that opportunity be lost. It's one of the ways that God redeems that darkness. It's in the midst of that darkness, the light shines through all the brighter and reveals what is true and living. The next great reversal is that gloom will be replaced with joy. Gloom will be replaced with joy. Because of the light shining in the darkness, the people respond with overpowering joy. The nations enlarged, that grows in influence, and the people rejoice as those who have achieved a great military victory. Or the other metaphor here is that those who've been the benefactors of an abundant harvest. Just imagine good news that you've received in life. Maybe it was a yes. Maybe it was a promotion. Maybe it was getting in a particular school. 
Maybe it was, I do. Think about some of the best news that you've ever heard in your life and multiply that a thousand times over. The joy of the good news of this announcement is incredible. And this year, we want to emphasize the theme of joy. There are many themes that we could talk about at Christmas time. We can just go around the Advent calendar, right? Love, joy, peace. We could talk about, we could talk about many of those. But this year, I felt like the world is weary. I mean, we're always weary. But we've been through a lot the last couple of years. And in the midst of that weariness, I think we all need to be reminded of this theme of joy. And so you've probably heard this before maybe many times, but we have to understand what joy is and what it's not. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. When things are going well, we have ha- we're happy. When they're not going well, we're not happy. That's okay. That's normal human behavior. Joy is something that we carry with us. It is a deep-seated gladness in God. It is the, the feeling of knowing Jesus, of knowing his love, the confidence that we have that no matter what happens, God is with us. That is joy. It's spirit-produced by responding and knowing and trusting in Jesus. And we, as the people of God, have a prophetic calling to be people of joy. Here's the corrective. I don't know if you knew this, but Christians aren't always knowing, is known as being the most joyful people. Now, we can't, we can't fix everybody's perception or every perception, but we can be a people who are characterized by joy because we of all people have reason for joy, even if we're weary. We don't have to pretend we're not weary. In fact, that's actually the great testimony. It's that we are weary and we feel the pain and hardness that everybody else feels, and yet we can rejoice in the midst of that. How in the world can you do that? Because we believe in a God who have brought joy into the midst of our darkness. And that makes a genuine difference in our lives. We're weary people, but we can rejoice. Our gloom has been replaced. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, the gloom of sin, in a way, is captured by a very deep winter. Sorry for those of you that are winter people. That's like your favorite season, okay? But in the metaphor, it's, it's cold, it's dark, nothing is growing, it's not very pleasant, okay? And even if you like winter here, I don't know if you'd like it like in Alaska, I don't know. But it's cold, it's gloomy. And yet when the power of Aslan begins to be on the move, things begin to thaw out, things begin to grow, things warm up because we'd rather be warm than cold. The gloom is replaced with joy. But joy requires discipline. We have to foster it. Because it should come naturally to us, but life has a way of beating it out of us. And so we have to practice joy. It's not just a a cognitive thing. It is an emotion, but it's an emotion that's felt at the soul level. It's a a deep thing. And, And in the book of Philippians, Paul says near the end of the letter, rejoice. And then he says it again, in case you missed it the first time. Again, I say rejoice, and it's a command. It's something we have to practice. And then he fuels that command with a reminder that the Lord is coming again. He is near, and therefore we should trust in God. We should pray through the difficult things in our lives. We can experience peace, and we need to focus on what is good and true and lasting. That's how we foster joy. We have to train our hearts to practice that joy. The same as gratitude. We have to practice it. 
And then it will become more and more our natural response to have that joy in the midst of the hard things. The next great transformation is that oppression is replaced with justice. So the joy of this occasion is likened to the day of Midian's defeat. This event would have been known to the people of God at that time. Maybe you're not familiar with it, but it happens during the time of Judges, when Judges ruled the land. And Midian becomes a judge. He's a military leader. And basically, they're in a situation that's pretty hopeless. The Midianites are cruel. They're much larger. Israel doesn't stand a chance. And what he ends up doing is taking a very, very small army. And in the middle of the night, they start like crushing pots and doing all this craziness. And it sets the Midianites into chaos. And they actually turn on each other. And the terror of the Lord falls on them. And as you're reading the story, you can't help but think, okay, this is really cool. And that's really creative. But clearly, there's a supernatural component here. In other words, God saved them when they were helpless to save themselves. He did something supernatural. And Isaiah is reminding the people of that event when he talks about this great transformation when we'll be released from oppression. We'll be set free, first of all, from our sins. That's the great freedom that we experience. And then secondarily from that, because of that, it will eliminate human oppression and disunity and all the kinds of things that are a result of human depravity. And this leads to the next transformation, which is that war will be replaced with peace. Oppression with justice and war replaced with peace. As a result of their release from oppression, they're no longer at war, and therefore their boots and their garments used for battle are no longer needed. He's actually building on a metaphor that he started in Isaiah 2, where it talks about them um, beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You guys familiar with that? I think the book of Amos also references the same idea. In other words, all the stuff that you use for war, one day you're no longer going to need it. This is really good news, right? We long for that because peace is better than war, amen? We were created to be at war. And peace is not always possible in this world, but the New Testament instructs us as believers. In Romans 12, if, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We are to actively pursue peace. War will be replaced with peace. That is the ultimate standard and longing. Now, how this is going to be accomplished is that earthly kings will be replaced with King Jesus. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the surprising conqueror who's going to accomplish this great victory and this great transformation will be a child born, a son. And he will bear that weight. He will not buckle under the pressure of, of leading these people, of taking the government upon his shoulders. He will not give in to corruption or injustice. He will not make unwise decisions. He will be unlike any king that the world has ever seen. In fact, he says this king will be superior to King David. He was considered Israel's greatest king. He'll rule over God's people in justice and peace. Now, this single verse speaks to both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. It uses four titles that are clustered together. 
The reason why you need four is because you can never capture who God is or who Jesus is in one title or one metaphor or one phrase. You need a lot because he's so multifaceted. I don't have time to go into the details on each of these titles because otherwise you all would be weary by the end of this sermon. But, but really quickly, the four titles, Wonderful Counselor. Israel often got into a mess when they lacked or ignored wise counsel. That's when we get into trouble. And we ignore that. And we could all benefit from the support of a good counselor, someone who can guide us, give us perspective on our struggles. And as God's people, we have the resources of Christ, who is described as our counselor, and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus here, the coming king, is described as a wonderful counselor. That doesn't just mean a really good counselor, like a wonderful counselor. It actually implies supernatural activity. It implies signs and wonders. He will be a wonderful counselor, not just like a human counselor, but he will be spectacular. He will have spirit-enabled insight, and that is why his leadership will be pure and wise and righteous. This counselor is also described as a mighty God. Wait a second, didn't you just say it was a child that was going to be born? So he's going to be a mighty God. That's the beautiful mystery of the incarnation. That's the very definition. God, man, fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Instead of judging us from above, God is going to take on flesh and enter our mess. He's going to come down. The mighty God will come from heaven and he will be born as a child. Yet this word mighty is important. It's used of those who are powerful, strong warriors. And I think it's a, a powerful image to remind us again, of the nature of Jesus. We often think of Jesus gathered around with the little children, humble and lowly and blessing them, and that is absolutely true of who Jesus is. He is humble and kind and servant-hearted, and he loved the little children. But sometimes we become so casual in our approach to God that I think we forget that, that also alongside of that is this mighty God who is described as the commander of the armies of heaven, right? The Lord Sabaoth, this powerful image that Jesus is a mighty God. He is humble and lowly and kind of heart, but yet he is also powerful and holy and righteous. He is the commander of the armies of heaven. We should serve him with holy trembling, see his power and his holiness. He is the mighty God. He's also described as the everlasting father, which is interesting. We don't think of Jesus as the Father. We think of the Son and God the Father distinctly. But he will, in a way, have a fatherly role in caring for us as his children. He will have a fatherly way of guiding the disciples that um, though he is the Son, he's also the Father. You know, he's also described as both the sacrificial lamb and the priest. Figure that one out. Right? He's the shepherd, and yet he's the Lamb of God. He's the son, but yet he is also like a father to us. And finally, he's described as the prince of peace. King Jesus will bring peace to his people by defeating our greatest enemy, death and sin. He said, my peace I give to you, not a peace like the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And finally, King Jesus will usher in the final reversal of this great prophetic vision of Isaiah, and that is that earthly kingdoms will be replaced with God's kingdom. It says in verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You know, throughout human history, we've tried to come up with governments to manage people and to organize resources. Nations have sought to establish good and righteous forms of government. And every time, human depravity makes this project elusive. Even a representative democracy like ours, as good as it is, it still can't solve all the problems, can it? Winston Churchill once said, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. You see, we try to come up with a government that we think will fit, but what we really need is we need an absolute monarchy, and we need a perfect king. Monarchies are really bad ideas. You guys have heard me say this before. We don't want to give absolute power to any person. So we've developed checks and balances because it deals with human depravity. This is wise. But really, truly, if you had a truly good king, King Jesus, you would want to give him all authority and all power. You would want him to make all the decisions. We would want to follow him in every way. And the kingdom of God promises us a king like no other. The prophet promises a child who will end darkness and gloom. He will end oppression and war. He will set us free from ourselves, free from our sin. Instead of war, his government will bring a peace to which there is no end. Make no mistake, this is political language. But it's unlike any other politics we've ever imagined. It's a new kind of leadership, a new kind of world. We see glimpses of this coming kingdom in the earthly ministry of Jesus. We see glimpses of the kingdom all around us as we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But yet, the kingdom is not fully here yet. Every day we wake up, we're reminded of that fact. And so we live in this tension between remembering that Jesus has come and anticipating that he will come again. Advent reminds us of this, that we're weary And yet we have reason to rejoice. And one day we will see fully. We will know fully. We will be known fully. And that brings us joy today, a quantifiable joy that really doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. It is a quality of peace and joy unlike anything the world can offer us. So let the weary world rejoice. Let us Rejoice, because our King has come, and He is coming again. Will you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you for this incredible reality and this incredible reminder. And God, we thank you for this truth that is relevant and applicable to each one of us in our lives. God, would you speak into our weariness? Whatever situation my friends are facing today, would you speak into it and would you give them a supernatural joy. God, I pray that you would grow that in us this Advent season, a joy which is contagious, a joy which points to the hope that is living within us. God, fill us as your people and may our lives give testimony to the joy that we have in you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.